52 Sketches Podcast, Episode 9, Cellist and Composer Daniel Sperry. Welcome to 52 Sketches, a podcast about creativity and creative practices. Here's your host, Rob Head. Welcome to the 52 Sketches Podcast. I am your host, Rob Head. Today, I am delighted that we get to spend a moment with musician Daniel Sperry. Daniel Sperry is a cellist, composer, singer, songwriter, poet, spoken word artist, street musician, and community artist living in Ashland, Oregon. He's the creator of five albums of instrumental music and three albums of spoken word with musical landscapes. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Rob, for having me on. Yeah, you're so welcome. It's great to have you. I really appreciate you taking the time. You know, this has been a really extraordinary year with the pandemic. So I just want to start by checking in. How are you and yours, your family, your loved ones? Everyone is good. Both of my, uh, my son and my daughter are both in much more hot spots than we are here. Right. But so far, everybody's good. Everybody's healthy. And I'm surviving in a, uh, a somewhat typical fashion if there's anything typical about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, we'll touch a little bit on how it's affected your your art a little bit later, but I want to start by backing up and, and saying, how did you get here? You know, owing to your, your regular public performances in Ashland and, and private performances and your many collaborations, you're quite visible in the community that we both live in. Um, which is, of course, the wonderful, artsy little town of Ashland, Oregon. But how did you get here? Let's back up all the way to the beginning and allow me to ask you about your youth. What kind of artistic endeavors did you participate in as a kid? Were you always into music or was there other things, visual art or writing or something else? Well, I was surrounded by music. My mother was a cellist and uh, and a professional cellist at that. So uh, she she had spent considerable amount of time mastering her craft. And so we listened to music on the record player all the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there was a heavy exposure in that. And she was of the mind to foster us in uh, becoming musicians if we had that desire. And it didn't turn out that either of my siblings had as much as I did, although they both played instruments. And there were times Uh in the house where our house sounded a little bit like a series of practice rooms, Uh, (laughs) you know, where everybody's in their bedroom doing their thing. And uh, that's a clarinet, a flute and a cello all playing in different, you know, locations. She was incredibly supportive. And that included getting me started on the cello and taking me to her teacher uh, later Mm. on, and then eventually driving an hour and a half every week so that I could study with a really incredible cellist who came to Florida, where I grew up, on a sabbatical from England. He was the principal cellist with the London Symphony. And uh, one of the cellists that George Martin uh, typically booked on... Uh, the Beatles recording sessions. So <laughs> I was just watching videos about those, those sessions. That's amazing. 
Well, uh, being his student was a remarkable experience because he was a world-class cellist. And Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. I think he had a Stradivarius. um, And, (laughs) uh, you know, it was just like being in awe of a superstar because at the time that I started playing with him, I had... I knew enough of the lay of the land to know that I was uh, I was in the presence of greatness, and he had a very right. big impact on my uh, on my whole technique and approach to the cello. Mm. So that was a beginning. Yeah, uh, sounds like a really strong early mentor uh, or model of what you could pursue. Yes, for sure. Yeah, your your family it, reminds me a lot of of my own. Um, my father was a trumpet professor, and my grandmother was a piano teacher and church organist, and so we all sort of grew up with it, which is an incredible, you know, sort of I don't know if blessing is the right word or you know opportunity. Um, my son-in-law, in fact, his, his mother managed to raise eff- effectively a string quartet. <laughs> really, among, among her children, yeah. So. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's an interesting thing to see these sort of musical families where it's just sort of part of the family life and it, it doesn't strike anyone as extraordinary. You know? I think anymore, you almost have to be part of some kind of lineage like that. It's not that mm-hmm. easy to become a string player. There are, mm-hmm. you know, huge hurdles. Uh, one of them is you sound terrible for quite a while. Right. Uh, so... You know, you have to have all kinds of encouragement and actually have some vision of what your goal is. And all of that just doesn't come, you know, out of thin air. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, having that model and, and, and seeing that it's possible and not some mysterious thing that you only see on TV is, is uh, I think, one of the, the benefits of that, certainly in my own life. Yeah. Um, so how did you get where did you go from there? Did you go and study at a conservatory, a university? Did you take a different path? Where did you go from there? Uh, well, I could say that I took a different path. It wasn't nearly as well planned out as it could have been or maybe should have mm. been, but it was what mm-hmm. it was. My teacher, Nelson Cook, took me to my first symphony audition, and that mm. was in Florida. So at 17, I was playing in the uh, Gulf Coast Symphony, which is one of the main, maybe the main professional orchestra in Florida. Hmm. And that was a great experience, but it being the mid-70s and me starting college and what was in the air, I started playing uh, with other kinds of musicians, folk musicians, bluegrass musicians, and I Hmm. began to have an interest in other kinds of music than classical music and, and kind of the question of, you know, could I participate in that? I was sort of learning piano on my own self-taught. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself in a, uh, a folk duo where I was playing stand-up bass and cello. And uh, eventually I found my way to Nashville, Tennessee, where um, mm. I, I I went there deliberately because it is a it is a music mecca. There are all kinds of music that get made in Nashville, and I got a seat in the cello section of the Nashville Symphony, which was a oh, beautiful. That was a big deal at the time. That's a major orchestra, and uh, mm-hmm. it 
it paid decently. And I also got, began to get recording sessions, you know, like jingles and demos and things like that, which there's a, right. especially at that time, there was a huge industry and that sort of thing. And the biggest development there was that I began to play in a band with a musician, a singer-songwriter whose name is Mac Gaden. He's the one who wrote the big R&B hit, Everlasting Love, um, okay. if you know that song. I do. I think I sang it in, in junior high school in choir. <laughs> well, it's been recorded. I mean, I think it's made BMI history. It's been recorded over and over again by many different artists. He sent both of mm -hmm. his daughters to college on the royalties from that song. But I had a wow. very unique experience with him uh, being invited to a picnic at his farm when I was 19. <laughs> and uh, we started jamming together and it was the most magical experience because mm. he, uh, his, I would say his musical path is one of, being one of the most creative guitar players, uh, sort of absorbing a bunch of different styles and and turning that all into something uniquely his own. And, and uh, so I was fortunate he invited me to play in this uh, trio that he was putting together, which included me and a, a wind player, a guy that played saxophone and clarinet and a bunch of recorders. And mm. we did just the most amazing music based around his songs, but with a lot of improvisation. So this is mid seventies, uh, jam bands really weren't a thing then. Uh, mm -hmm. so we were kind of way ahead of our time also incorporating cello in, you know, yeah. contemporary music. That wasn't that right. much of a thing then. I think Harry mm -hmm. Chapin had a cello all over one of his albums, but, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but mostly, cello was out of the box if you saw it uh you know mm -hmm. employed with the singer songwriter whereas now it's it's almost a commonplace right right yeah strikes me you achieved a level of musical success you know just the symphonies alone to be college aged and playing with the natural symphony and you you achieved in your youth what people spend 30 years training to become and so it's it's fascinating. You sort of reached this sort of pinnacle of the classical world and then started exploring what you really wanted to do. <laughs> well, and um, that uh, <laughs> that's a blessing <laughs> and a curse, you know, because yeah. uh, in the creative arts, we find that there are what you the way you could describe them as traditional channels where the pathway mm -hmm. for success is pretty well laid out. And the matter is like, can you hit all the marks that you need to mm -hmm. hit in order to compete in that arena? Or right. alternatively, there's the paths that involve something far more, uh, you know, extemporaneous, uh, and entrepreneurial and, uh, you know, music, pop music, yeah. Yeah, I've chosen, I've chosen repeatedly paths that were less well trodden, and 
you know that has that has its reward because you're doing something you're that's creatively free, wholly yeah. your own thing, and it mm-hmm. also you know has the problem of there's oftentimes not that much of an economic pathway for how that's going to be supported. Although there there is, it's just, you know, you, you're you a lot more involved in trying to find that. Right. So let's talk about that. Did you, did you continue to make a living in music or did you have to do other things to pay the bills when you started to, to venture further away from the beaten path? I did. I did have to do other things to pay the bills. And I did like things that involved sales and marketing for many years with a, just a very active, you know, sideline of music with the idea that I, I always had the idea, well, you know, I'll like make enough money to be able to do music. And mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. Uh, the time came when I realized that I wasn't going to make enough money to be able to do music. You know, that that mm-hmm. just wasn't, uh, that fantasy wasn't going to come true, that it was more like, if you want to do music, you have to decide that's what you're going to do and figure out a way to do it. Right. So that's what right. happened about maybe 12 years ago. That was my that was a turning point for me. And it, I remember clearly that it had to do with my identifying myself as a musician. Like I had to sort right. of own up to, OK, that's what I'm all about. This is who I am. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the, it, it sounds like you had this epiphany and realized, okay, there's not enough hours in the day to do both. Not enough success from doing something, you know, uh, halftime to, to imagine funding yourself. Well, I, I, uh, you brought up a couple of really important points about the creative life. Um, mm-hmm. One is that I would say it may be true that all pursuits are creative. You know, like mm-hmm. you could be a creative salesperson, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what you're, uh, you have pursued, uh, am I right? Software development? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so there's an enormous amount of creativity. I, I heard a beautiful talk recently from a guy who'd studied the brain for many, many years, who said that Mm -hmm. scientists that really recognize what they're doing recognize that creativity is a huge part of what they're doing. So how that applies to the situation that I was in at the time was, if I felt like being creative in the endeavor that I had chosen as a career, uh, I would have been better at it but I was mm-hmm. not inspired by it. And right. therefore, I was not having the kind of success that would have made it worthwhile to continue. Right. So that was on one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin is the question of, if you have an art, how are you going to do that? And I really think that uh, my decision to do nothing but music, no matter what that meant, mm-hmm. was crucial towards being able to carve out any kind of life doing that. There were mm-hmm. points along the way where it's like, ah, okay, so I'm not really doing that well. 
uh, maybe I should get a part-time job or do this or that on the side. And it was always a no because I understood how much was involved in both creating and finding an audience for the things that I was creating. Mm -hmm. Because especially along that entrepreneurial path, you're creating everything. You're creating your path and you're creating your art. Right. So that's a different proposition than, say, uh, maybe you're uh, a composer, but you can teach. Um, Mm -hmm. Or you're a cellist, but you can teach. And teaching is maybe what pays the bills. And that's the Um, classic model, like all the way back to Mozart and before. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So uh, my, you know, I haven't been to your place, but my impression is that you your epiphany and your commitment to doing only music involved a lot of simplification of your life. Uh, Uh, What was that process like? (laughs) uh, Well, okay. So again, you're bringing up a very good point because um, there are many things that you do in life where if you realized what was going to be involved or what the price was going to be that you would pay, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't sign up for it. You know, you'd say like, that's too, that's too high of a price to pay. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, um, it has entailed a drastic downsizing in my expectations of what, uh, for example, I'm going to own in life. You know, a lot of the, mm-hmm. a lot sure. of the creature comforts and material aspirations that some people might have. I just... I don't have so much for me, like, you know, getting mm-hmm. new gear. If I can buy a thousand dollar microphone, I'm like, wow. Okay. So that's the, that is the ultimate, you know? <laughs> right. So I am extremely happy and content in my space, which, you know, right now I've recently upgraded a lot of the recording gear. So I'm, I'm operating with, better equipment than I Uh have in 10 years. And, and it is a place where basically entering the space makes me feel at home. And like, this is where I can tinker and try things and, Mm. um, you know, come up with the future. Yeah. 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 You know, most of many of these interviews, we, we come to a place where you can't separate the idea of being creative from larger spiritual concerns, you know, like what, what is my relationship to the material world? You know, <laughs> you know, what, what do I value that sort of thing? So it sounds like part of the thing that makes your art possible is things like being detached from, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and being clear about what you need, uh, to, to be happy. Well, that's for sure. And I, I, I heard, um, I heard a really great cellist say recently that to study an instrument in college was the best liberal arts degree that you could ever give yourself mm-hmm. because you're you're learning about being human you know you're learning the the various different skills and disciplines that you need to be human and and when you said you know being detached uh, one of the things that I immediately went to is a, a very interesting dichotomy that exists when you're performing, which is that you 
uh, one of your jobs is to convey emotion. Mm-hmm. And one of the main things people respond to, somebody put a comment in a in a live stream that I did recently. They said, your playing is so unique, it conveys so much emotion. That's the kind of thing you'd love to hear. Yeah. Well, I, of course, that is, <laughs> right? uh, yeah. I, okay, mission accomplished. That's what I yeah. was, that's what <laughs> that I was hoping what I was for. Doing. <laughs> on, on the other hand, I can't be taken away by the emotion that I'm expressing. I have to operate my instrument and the instrument of my body in such a way that it will convey that message without myself becoming consumed by it. So that's a yeah. that's a spiritual mm-hmm. practice all of its own, you know, because yes. you have something you're putting out to the world and what what you mm-hmm. hope to convey, but to the degree that you get lost in it or caught up by it too much, then mm-hmm. you, you lose you your... You can't execute the craft. Yeah, yeah, you can't execute what you need to execute. Yeah, let me drill down on that a little bit because I think... You mentioned caring for your instrument, and I want to talk about that, like literally your cello, but also yourself as your instrument. How do you, do you have daily practices that you do that keep you in shape to keep doing this permanently, you know, long term? I've really been much more focused on that in recent years because the cello is a very physical instrument. So mm-hmm. I do a, a whole practice that involves wrist uh, stretches and arm stretches. And uh, I'm fortunate because I've been able to develop with the help of some expert people, some things that are extremely good for the fact that I sit sometimes, you know, three hours a day doing a a very bizarre thing with my, with both of my hands. I don't think as humans we're constructed to press our fingers against steel strings, you know, over long, long (laughs) periods of time, but that's exactly what I do. So, so I have to do, you know, various kinds of yoga and particular targeted practices that are there to Mm -hmm. just keep Mm -hmm. myself in as good a shape as possible. Mm. Uh, I also noticed that you uh, transport yourself and your cello around uh, under your own power <laughs> rather than driving around. And is that part of keeping yourself healthy? Um, it's it's partly that. It's, it's also, to some degree, having a smaller footprint for myself. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. I, sure. I'm fortunate because my partner and I can... Uh, share a car when there's a need for a a gig that's out of town but Ashland is a very blessed town for biking you can do Mm -hmm. a lot of what you need to do on a bike and my bike is electric assist so I I really have no (laughs) excuse for going anywhere (laughs) even up in the hills on my bike so it's a combination Uh of it's it kind of fits the lifestyle of trying to be active and and as strong as possible and kind of minimizing the need for an insurance payment or a car payment or anything like that. Right, right. Okay, so how did you find, you know, what are your current channels of expression and more to the point, uh, what are your streams of, of support and sustainability that keep you able to continue? Right now is a beautiful case in point of exactly what I'm up to with that. The park performances that I do 
Yeah, tell us about that. A lot of people that. think I'm, well, um, I came into the park about 10 years ago uh, randomly uh, with a new cello, and my son asked me if I'd play it some, and I sat on the stone wall and started playing, and people started putting money in my case, and that uh, surprised me and pleased me, and I decided I'd do it some more. And mm-hmm. that practice of going into the park and playing has evolved over time in a number of different ways, but it's now become like really a beautiful ongoing performance that I do at least five days a week and, you know, mm-hmm. usually three sets, about three hours a day. And uh, it's not a gigantic amount of money that I make, but it's actually significant for me as a kind of a regular flow of cash that right. can kind of fund uh, my ongoing life, at least during the season, which ends up being Mm -hmm. about maybe seven or eight months out of the year. And then what it really is, is a uh, hub for the community. So Mm -hmm. one of the forms of my creativity that I've developed over this whole span of time is the musical portrait, which is this piece that is commissioned by an individual either as a gift or sometimes to celebrate a particular occasion. And for example, right now I'm working on a musical portrait which has been commissioned by a woman for her husband on the occasion of their, I think it's maybe their 30th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So it's a big anniversary. And so in the quote unquote days off that I have, I'm composing. That's a good process for me because I have a prompt that is not just, well, do I want to be creative? Uh, you know, what kind of inspiration mm-hmm. I have? It's a very specific. It gives you some structure. You're essentially I, collaborating with the, uh, with the yeah, commissioner. I'm, I'm collaborating with the commissioner and I have a deadline. So it, it's for a creative person, you know, mm. having structure and having a deadline is super good. Yeah, yeah, I feel seen right now. <laughs> That's how yeah, I work. Too. Exactly. I can't do it. Right. Yeah, yeah. just be creative. I, I'm completely paralyzed. But like, mm-hmm. okay, by by Wednesday we need X. You know, okay, right. cool. I can do that. It's a whole different deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, are there other things that you're doing? So you've got these uh, commissioned compositions. You you play in the park. Uh, and by the way, you know, a lot of our audience won't know this but you're you're sort of a fixture you're one of the features of of lithia park when people come to visit ashland and uh you know i suspect if people were to google cello in lithia park or even dancing in lithia park they would they would find many a video of you yeah i (laughs) Uh, think that's true yeah in other words it's part of the community in a way that is is really uh special it's fascinating well Uh, it's beautiful particularly because then I will become part of people's weddings. Mm -hmm. I will become part of people's memorial services. Mm -hmm. I will sometimes be invited for, men have invited me to come and play for an anniversary dinner, you know? Mm -hmm. So all of the kinds of community gatherings and and, uh, celebrations that people want to have and make, special with live music, I mm-hmm. tend to become a part of a lot of those kinds of things. Yeah. 
I want to ask you about your your multi, I don't know if multimedia is quite the right thing, your spoken word projects. You've done several albums of spoken word with cello and I wonder, and, and with, with uh, other tracks and which poets and writers have inspired you and, you know, to score their words and, and tell us about that. Well, I started, this was again a thing where I was trying to come up with a way to do a performance that would be more interesting than just a whole evening of instrumental music, which, you know, mm-hmm. that has its own appeal, but I wanted to break it up. And And I'm a mm-hmm. big fan of various kinds of poetry. And I began to uh, look at Rumi. Along the way, I discovered William Stafford, Naomi Shihab Nye. There were certain few books of collections that had a big impact on me. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize that each poem... If you really dive into it, it is almost like a journey through the poet's mind. It's as if this poet is creating a landscape that uh, you are privy to and present in with them. And mm-hmm. so rather than just create an atmosphere for that poem, I wanted to help to communicate, let's say, my emotional journey in Mm -hmm. uh, experiencing the poem. So that was sort of the idea behind creating these little soundtracks and also learning the poems because there's something so remarkable about learning a poem from memory and being able to Mm -hmm. speak it as if it was your conversation, because Mm -hmm. I remember one of the things I read that William Stafford, the way that he described poetry was lucky talk. And (laughs) you know how it is, and you're particularly, uh, you're guilty of this, Robert, of having good (laughs) conversations, you know. You're, You're guilty of having the conversation where, something gets spoken that is almost like poetry or maybe just like poetry. Mm -hmm. Or like sometimes like prayer or something. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Right. And, and I think poetry has a kinship with prayer in that Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're doing our best to communicate with the invisible right? To commune, yeah. Yeah, to to be in the presence of that which is not necessarily obvious, but is nevertheless here. Right, right. Wow. Okay. I wanted to ask you about the the spoken word compositionally. One of the classic truths of opera is that the particular language, you know, affects the vowel sounds, the rhythm of the language, the consonants, affects the way people write you know, for voice, but with spoken words, did you find that it it had a similar impact? Do you think that sort of qualities of the English language impacted the way that you wrote the music to score it? Oh, that's a hundred percent true. And this is, this is really fascinating because I would, I would say that some poets are not that musical. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you read their work, I, I I myself have trouble finding the rhythm in the poetry, whereas like uh, Stafford is really a great example of a poet that y- you just almost immediately start hearing the rhythmic flow of things mm-hmm. because of the way that he's laid out 
the language. And I actually, there was another, uh, it was an interview with the great poet Billy Collins, who someone asked him, you know, like, what do you need to have a good poem or how can you be a good poet? And, and he described a few things, but at the end he said, but your poem has to have a sense of music. And if you don't mm-hmm. have a sense of music, I can't help you. I completely agree. (laughs) That's wow. That's I've always been of the opinion that cross training across different arts really helps inform us, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Can you be a great poet if you don't have a sense of rhythm and melody? I don't, I don't think so. (laughs) No, I don't think so. And vice versa, you know, right. Can you really be a great musician if you've got nothing to say? Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So, how, how can people find you if they want to look up your work? My website is danielaustinsperry.com. And my eight CDs can be found at danielaustinsperry.bandcamp.com. Uh, Daniel, it's such a joy to spend time with you and to talk with you about your work. And I very much appreciate you taking the time. Well, I really admire you uh, diving into the creative life. I really appreciate it. We need more yeah, of absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's my, it's, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. You bet. Coming up, original music by Daniel Sperry. The 52 Sketches podcast is a product of 52 Sketches. Makers of EarlyWords.io, daily, private, stream of consciousness writing to clear your mind and unlock your creativity. Now, Deep Inside and Over by our guest, Daniel Sperry.